Morning, Parkhurst. Uh, my name is Pete, and uh, it's a joy to be going through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes together, and we are going to be in chapter 4 this morning. Ecclesiastes, the search for meaning, and I must say that this is one of my favorite books. The Bible is always almost kind of brutal in its honesty, but uh, that is supercharged when it comes to the book of Ecclesiastes. And we really need this. We really need this, just like we need our double espresso in the morning or like we need our strong whiskey in the evening. We need something to jolt us out of our kind of misunderstanding of the way the world works and a book that gives us the, the raw honesty of what's really going on. Now, what I'd like us to, to all do now is to just cast your mind back to when you were starting off your adult life, perhaps your early 20s or so. I know some of you are, are only there now, but I think it's safe to say that most of us are already past that or in some cases well past that time. But just imagine you were asked at that point in time in your life what your hope was for your life. I think many of us would have said that my hope would be to have a fulfilling job that was recognized by others and a life that was filled with meaningful relationships with friends or a spouse or kids or work colleagues. Um, perhaps we would have said that we wouldn't have minded a bit of fame and riches thrown into the mix. And certainly if we could have had all of that while being in a world that is mostly peaceful and prosperous, while bonus. And I think these are, these are common longings that we all face. But then we get to Ecclesiastes 4 that really takes something of a wrecking ball to all of these hopes and dreams and gives us the truth of reality and the, the way that the world actually works. It's really quite shocking. So let's take a look. We're going to be reading the entire chapter, Ecclesiastes 4, from the ESV. And Luke and Heidi are going to do that for us. Morning, Parkers. Today we're reading from Ecclesiastes 4, verse 1 to 16. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who were already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? 
And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For when he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with the youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this, is also, this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Okay, let me just uh, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for these words that come from your mouth. They are your words. They are words of truth. They are words that uh, we need. Thank you so much that you promise that in the Bible we have everything that we need for life and godliness. Thank you also that you promise that your word, uh, even though written down in a sense thousands of years ago, is still alive and living and active. And as we hear it and encounter it today, we still can expect to have an encounter with uh, the living God, and in the process be deeply uh, changed and encouraged and built up and challenged and all those good things. And I pray that that indeed would be the case again today, that your living word would go out as I seek to unpack what we see here in Ecclesiastes 4. In Jesus' name, amen. This is how we're going to break it down. We're going to take a look at harsh realities of living in this fallen world, wisdom in in, in how to respond to those realities, and finally the wisdom beneath the wisdom. So some harsh realities of living in this fallen world. There's some strong stuff here, so I encourage you to brace yourself. We're going to take a look at what Solomon has to say about work and justice and fame. So let's start with work. Most of us, I think, have a fairly strong desire to do productive work that is recognized by others, and, and even work that leaves a legacy. And we get all starry-eyed and we dream about what this might look like as we are starting off in our adult lives. And I think it has to be said that the preacher in Ecclesiastes is encouraging us here in chapter 4, perhaps to curb our enthusiasm. Let's take a look again at what is said in verses 4 to 7. Then I saw all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of, of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? So instead of it being normal to feel like you're making a difference in your work, like you're being super productive doing what you love, what you get here instead is a picture that most of us know all too well if we have lived a bit. Spinning your wheels, toil that is painful and wears us down, striving, 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 but never quite arriving at our destination and facing as a rule, not an exception, setbacks and disappointments. And even working ourselves to the bone, to the detriment of the rest of our lives, and certainly to the detriment of our health. If we're honest, we have to admit that most of the time, everything is so much harder than we hoped it would be. Tim Keller 
I remember quoted a, a famous English writer, uh, or didn't quote, uh, tells a story about a, a famous English writer whose epitaph, you know, an epitaph is what's written on their gravestone. Um, this is what's written on this famous English writer's gravestone. I plowed water. <laughs> I mean, it's quite an image, isn't it? What happens after a plow goes through water? What does the water look like after the plow has gone through it? It looks exactly the same, right? And I guess that's, in many senses, how work often feels. And I think a lot of this is driven by us trying so hard to mask our anxiety and, and, and perhaps even disappointment with life. And we're trying to tell ourselves the whole time, do I really matter? And of course, a place like Joburg, where most of us watching this live, is a hotspot for this kind of attitude, isn't it? So, first kind of wrecking ball to work. Work so frequently is not productive and, and doesn't end up feeling meaningful or significant. What about being recognized by others? Well, what we have here is, is kind of the opposite, really. The preacher observes that most work is in some fundamental way driven by envy. I mean, let's be honest here. We hate to see our friends and family get ahead quicker than us while we get left behind. We might smile and congratulate them outwardly, but deep down you are hating life at that point. Why? Because we have been brought down in comparison. Proverbs 6.34 says that jealousy makes a man furious. Or just think about the kind of opposite scenario. We'll come and commiserate and put our arms around, or we used to be able to do that, <laughs> uh, put our arms around someone who's been knocked down, but secretly, if we're honest with ourselves, there's something inside us that is actually kind of happy about it. Well, let's put up verse 8 again. What a sad picture, but so common today. This is so modern. You're, you're so driven by success that you ruin all your relationships on the way. And so even if there's some so-called recognition for your success in the end, it's not real recognition. It doesn't count. There's no one to actually share it with. No one who counts. Because you've lost all of them on the way. So modern, isn't it? Such a common pathology in a place like Joburg. Friends, this kind of Radical individualism and self-sufficiency is not at all biblical. And it leads to a smaller and sadder life than God wants for us. And so I want to ask you this morning, who have you gone deep with? Do you have any real deep friends who you could call in the middle of the night if you had a crisis? Or who would come to your side in hospital if you landed up there? So another wrecking ball to the desire for recognition in our work. What about leaving a legacy? Well, let's take a look at verse 8 again. This guy doesn't end up asking the question that he should be asking. For whom am I toiling? And let's go back to chapter 2, where Solomon said this, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. And he has this kind of sobering note that is sounded through the entire book. In all likelihood, in less than a hundred years' time, no one will know who you are or what you did. <laughs> so much for leaving a legacy with our work. Here's one way to just kind of illustrate this. It's quite, I mean, I guess it's kind of funny and sad at the same time. Back in the late 1800s, there was a, there was a man called James Strong who wrote 
the famous Strong's Concordance on the entire Bible. And a concordance basically is a list of all the words that you find in a given text, in this case the Bible, and kind of the cross-reference of where to find every instance of that word. And it was said that this was basically James Strong's life work. Incredible, meticulous piece of work. But the sobering thing is that today the same piece of work can be done in seconds by a machine. You get the sense of plying water again. And so friends, whether we're looking for work to be super meaningful and significant, we're looking for deep recognition from it or leaving a legacy with it, Ecclesiastes 4 is, is, is encouraging us to cool our jets a bit and temper our expectations. What about justice? Well, the first verses of chapter 4 paints a raw, honest, but fairly bleak picture, but a picture that I think most of us in South Africa could resonate with quite deeply. Let's just take a look at verse 1 again. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. You know, I think the injustice in this world is so bad that we need to distract ourselves almost from going mad. I mean, just ask anyone who works for love justice about what human beings are capable of doing. And just take a look at our country, whether in the recent past or the more distant past, and it's a story again and again of injustice, of people in power misusing that power. And those without any power and without any resources to fight back getting the raw deal. And, you know, things never really change. Solomon, looking around his world thousands of years ago, is so distressed by these things that he thinks aloud that it would be better to be dead, or, and even better not to have been born in the first place, than to deal with the injustice and oppression in this world. How's that for perspective? Sometimes life is just so difficult that the alternative not to have lived is genuinely a better alternative. I don't know, Matt, perhaps this resonates a bit more than normal with you right now. It just feels like there is so little good news right now. And as usual, who is suffering the most in this crisis? It's the poor, it's the weak, the downtrodden, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, as usual. And we should weep over these realities. Jesus took a look at the world in which he found himself, and he sighed and even wept. Even wept. The Apostle Paul talks about the whole creation groaning as a woman in the midst of labor pains. And the Apostle Peter talks about us not being surprised about the, the trials that we face in this world. The curse, friends, of Genesis 3 is real. And Ecclesiastes is not afraid to give it to us straight. The final aspect of uh, living in this fallen world is that of fame. Uh, no, I don't know about you, but this I don't feel that this has been... A significant temptation for me. I think I'm far too introverted to, to really aspire to some kind of level of fame. But I have been reflecting that with the rise of social media in the last decade or so, it's now actually a lot easier to become somewhat famous, to have someone who has thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of followers and to, to be able to monetize that. One thing that uh, just <laughs> it really does my head in is... I look at my boys, and uh, they are 12 and 7, and literally what they love doing more than anything, bar none in this world, is to watch YouTube videos 
of gamers, video gamers playing games. Let me just, you know, have you understood what I'm saying? I'm not saying their favorite thing is to play video games themselves, but to watch other people play video games is quite something. Um, but then when you go and dig a little bit under the surface, you find out that these gamers have, have literally millions of followers, and this is not what they do for money. I mean, it's, it's, it's mind-bending. Anyway, let's, let's go back to our text and take a look at the end of uh, chapter 4. And what you have here is this little story of an old king and then a young man who comes from nothing to take his place as king. So it's a really kind of nice story. I'm sure they've made a movie about it. Come to think about it, it's kind of the plot line of hundreds of movies. Um, but while kind of on the side commenting on the moral superiority of the young king who was humble and teachable uh, compared to the old king who wasn't, the main point of the story is that even this young and kind of better king also saw his star rise and then fall and finally fall into obscurity. What does it say? It says, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. In other words, whether the king was good or bad, it didn't really make a difference in the end. They were both were soon forgotten. According to Derek Kidner in his excellent commentary on Ecclesiastes, he says this, that the new king has reached a pinnacle of human glory, only to be stranded there. It's yet another of our human anticlimaxes and ultimately empty achievements. So work, justice, fame, all of these are not the place in which to put our hope and our expectations for ultimate significance is what Ecclesiastes 4 would have us uh, would have us know. So what is some wisdom in how to respond? How should we respond to the reality of this deeply frustrating and messed up world? Should we resign ourselves to nihilism, believing with Bertrand Russell that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Well, I mean, I guess that's one possible response. And I actually want to say it's not an irrational response if you really do believe that life under the sun is all that there is. Certainly more consistent than atheists who want to claim that uh, you know, we, we've come from nowhere, we're going nowhere. Nevertheless, life has deep meaning and significance. But Ecclesiastes, friends, is part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. And that means that we expect to find amongst the realism about the state of affairs in this world, at the same time, some genuine wisdom on how to live amidst those ruins. Yes, life is fleeting, and yes, death is coming, and yes, the world is broken. But at the same time, life is still a gift from God, and there is a new world coming that has already been inaugurated. And, and therefore, it is both possible and optimal to live with both a realistic assessment of the way things are, and at the same time, a deep optimism and hope. How? Well, firstly, okay, four things. Firstly, with teachability. So let's go back to the old king at the end of the chapter. Isn't this so common that the combination of the, of the genuine challenges of life in this broken world and the progression of us getting stuck in stubborn habits as we get older makes us unwilling to be prepared to take advice or to be corrected. 
Friends, this is not the way of wisdom. Normally in the Bible, old age leads to wisdom, but this is not always the case. And so we need to be beware of becoming cynical and unteachable. If I have to be honest, I, I already feel this temptation, and I'm only in my middle age. And I need to guard against it, and I need to fight it. Friends, are you prepared to be wrong and to be corrected? Again and again, the Bible insists that God is on the side of the humble and the teachable. God gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud. After all, to be a disciple of Jesus means to be a lifelong learner, prepared to again and again come under his teaching authority and to be corrected about the way that we see things that are so often deeply wrong. Friends, here's what I want to say. Regardless of what we know, we still know nothing, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Regardless of what we know, we still know nothing. And to get to that kind of attitude is to be truly wise. The answer to the harsh realities of this world is not to grow cynical and bitter, but to become humble and teachable. John Calvin, when asked about his conversion, to describe his conversion, very interestingly, this is how he summarized it. He said, God subdued my mind and brought it into a teachable frame. And so are you humble enough to be teachable throughout your life? The next piece of wisdom we get here is that we should live our lives with balance. We need to be honest that we are driven by all sorts of ungodly motives in our work. And this causes either frenzied work on the one hand, or the opposite, but, but something is still, I think, driven by the same kind of set of motivations, which is to, to throw in the towel and fold our hands in laziness, which is so vividly described here as eating our souls. And the reason I think that's also driven by the same kind of motivation is because if we're looking for work to give us lasting significance, and we find that it's unable to deliver that, one reasonable kind of reaction is to kind of say, okay, I've had it. I'm going to throw in the towel. Striving or laziness, both driven by very similar motives. But take a look at verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. What is better than frenzy? What is better than laziness? What is the third way? Is there a middle path for us to walk? And the answer is yes. It's one handful of quietness and another handful of work. And this quietness evokes a kind of deep, peaceful rest. And so we have this image here of rest and then work. Work that is done from a place of rest. If there's one concept that Christians seem to ignore today, it's the concept of Sabbath. There's this theme that runs as a very strong theme throughout the Bible. This idea of rest is God's idea. Remember, right in the beginning of Genesis, we see God resting from his work. <clears throat> and rest then becomes one of his gifts to us. Jesus says Sabbath was given to man, for man, as a gift. And so, friends, when we get to a place of seeing work not uh, as, as something that's able to deliver all these things that we expect it to, to deliver to us, but at the same time acknowledging that it is a gift, a gracious gift from God, then and only then will we be free to work hard, not out of this desperate desire to prove ourselves and even to ascribe some kind of ultimate meaning to our lives, but rather out of a desire to, to work hard from gratitude towards God for what he has given us and out of love towards our neighbor. But this requires, of course, trusting God, trusting God, the gift giver, 
and entering into the rest that Jesus offers, which is something I'll talk about more in a moment. So we have this amazing image of one hand, yes, should be working hard, but the other hand is open to both receive rest from God and then open to give to others. Related to this point is that we need to learn to live with learned contentment. This handful of quietness is also referring to being content with what we have. The striving so hard to get ahead in the world is largely driven by envy, as we saw. What's the solution? Isn't it obvious? It's about being content with what we already have. Paul said so memorably in Philippians that he had learned to be content, whether with a lot or with a little. So it's a kind of skill that we can learn. And the book of Ecclesiastes is prodding us the whole time, especially this chapter, trying to get us to stop expecting to get lasting satisfaction from the gifts, from the gifts, and to rather look past them to the gift giver. As I reflected on this, I, I recognize that there are two ways to be content. One is to get everything that you desire, and the other is to stop desiring everything. One is to get everything that you desire, and the other way is to stop desiring everything. And I'm sure you know only one of those has any chance of success. If you keep desiring everything, even when you get everything that you desire, if that happens, you'll find on the other side of that just a whole new set of desires. Jim Carrey famously said this, I wish everyone could experience being rich and famous so that see it wasn't the answer to anything. Let's hear that, but we, we struggle to believe that, don't we? And so I just want to end the section by reminding us that we deserve nothing but judgment, friends. What we've received instead is staggering. And it should lead to deep gratitude and certainly should lead to deep contentment. Let's learn to be content with what we have, and particularly with the God who stands behind everything we have. Final piece of wisdom that we, we get from Solomon here is that we need to learn to live in community and in partnership. Ecclesiastes wants us to know that life is meant to be lived together, not alone. God himself is a community, and the people he has created in his image will only flourish when they learn that community is, very, is, is completely at the heart of who we have been made to be. And we need to learn to start asking questions like, how are we doing, rather than how am I doing? Friends, this small tweak in perspective can change your life. Let's take a look at verses 9 to 12 again. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him is who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man may prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily or quickly broken. So in context here, Solomon is saying that working in collaboration is wiser than working driven by envy. I guess it's obvious when I stated like that. But they, you know, even some benefits are itemized and listed here. You get better results working together. I guess you know, this is one of the reasons that we've seen such a drive over the last decade or two in the workplace to teams are everything. Working in teams are everything. And those who are able to work in teams are the ones who kind of you know, get recognized and rewarded. So you get better results. You help each other when you're struggling. You cheer each other up. It's a big deal as well. And you offer each other protection. And as a result, working together, resilience comes. 
But I think that the concepts in these verses are more widely applicable than just to, to work. In the sense that life itself is a gift to be shared with others. Both the successes and the failures, the joy and the pain. Galatians 6 verse 2 says this, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How amazing is that? Don't you want to fulfill the law of Christ? You can do that by bearing one another's burdens, which means being obviously up close and personal in a deep and meaningful way in other people's lives. Friends, this is why, I guess you could say, this is why we have a church in the first place. It's because of these concepts. This is why you need to be in a community group. Life together is deeper, richer, it's even safer, and it's certainly more filled with joy than a life lived on your own. According to the Bible, true wealth is more people in your life. A great life is a life shared with many. Jesus put it this way, lose your life and you will find it or you'll save it. In other words, he's trying to say, lose this this desire to just selfishly live for yourself and rather live for the good of other people. And in the process, you will find a far, far deeper satisfaction and richer life for yourself. And friends, I want to say, if you don't see the importance of this, you've missed one of the major messages and themes of the entire Bible. But of course, this is going to mean that others see our flaws and our weaknesses which is why some of us are happy to keep our distance. Some of us are so happy just to keep consuming on the, on the, on the outskirts. And let me appeal to you, if this is you, with this quote from C.S. Lewis. Those of you who know me will know that no true preach is complete without a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So let me just close this section off by asking asking you this morning, who are you partnering with? Who are you discipling with? Are you discipling someone? Are you being discipled by someone? Who are you leaning on? Who is leaning on you? With whom are you working? With whom are you praying? To whom are you accountable? <clears throat> Where are your strongest relationships? Friends, these things don't happen by accident. Do you have strong relationships? If not, what can you change coming out of today? What one thing can you do to change the trajectory of your life. This takes intentionality. This takes effort. The message of Ecclesiastes 4, friends, is that life is not meant to be lived alone. Finally, what is the wisdom beneath the wisdom? What's going on at a deeper level? What really makes the world like this in the first place? What is the real reason that we are looking to get so much out of our work? What is the reason that we so frequently long for fame and significance and we even resort to stepping on our neighbor and oppressing the powerless in our mad quest for success? What is really wrong with us and what is really wrong with the world? And I think one, one key way in which to answer that question is that people actually have an identity crisis. 
as I was saying earlier, people have been created in the image of God and therefore have a true inbuilt need for significance. It's given to us by God. It's written in our DNA. If you think about it, how could we not aspire to greatness and even glory if that is our real origin and God is our actual spiritual father, which he is? But see, the problem is because of the distorted, twisted nature of sin, we pursue this greatness, which is right, in all the wrong ways, which is wrong. So, for example, in our work, we don't just manufacture a product, but we try foolishly to manufacture a self. We try to tell ourselves and we try to show others that I'm somebody special. I'm at least as good as you. Because this is why if we lose our jobs or our businesses, it's utterly devastating to us because that was our very self. I think it's almost needless to say that we need something better, something bigger, something more lasting, something more significant than that to be able to fill this void in our hearts. Friends, we need the gospel because it's the only thing big enough. It's the only thing glorious enough to give us the identity that we all are looking for. But this identity comes to us as a gift. You can't work for it. You can't trample on others to get it. And certainly not even the greatest fame that the world could give, could bestow it. And the gospel comes to us and tells us that on the one hand, we're far worse than we ever thought. We're so bad that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could solve our deepest problem of alienation from God. But then at the same time, the gospel tells us that we are so much more loved than we could have ever dared dream. So loved that God himself was deliriously happy to do this for us. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. For the joy of seeing you forgiven of your sins, to see you reconciled back to him and to have you living with him for all eternity future. For that joy, he was deliriously happy to do this for you, for you and for me, for people who are so prone to laziness, to envy, to striving, to idolatry, to pride. Friends, we need the gospel. Let's resolve afresh to get our identity there and to build our lives around Jesus and what he has done for us, rather than all the futile and foolish things that we are seeing again and again in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the hard-hitting message of this book and of this chapter, Lord. Please forgive us for the foolishness of us striving after trying to seek out ultimate meaning and significance, whether in overt or covert ways, um, whether outwardly or in a more subtle way. Lord, we all are prone to do this, to seek to get from your gifts ultimate meaning when we should be rather looking through them and past them to the gift giver. Lord, please set us free from this foolishness. Please give us the wisdom to pursue you. Please give us the wisdom to build our lives around Jesus and the gospel. I pray that you would help us now. Anything that you have been trying to put your finger on this morning to point out, that you would help us come to a place of repentance, which really just means kind of seeing it, acknowledging it, and turning from it because we recognize that there's, there's nothing in it. And turning instead towards you, Lord, and the life that you give, and the hope and the joy that you bring, and the, and the significance and the meaning that, 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 that you uniquely 
and exclusively are able to give to our lives. Yeah, and we, we, we pray all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name, knowing that he has secured them for us. And we are so grateful for the fact that we can pray with such confidence and boldness, knowing that you are inclined towards us and you want to answer our prayers. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.